Welcome to Breakpoint Podcast, breaking down the world of tennis with your hosts, Val Fabo and Joel Frucci. Hello and welcome to Breakpoint Podcast. Val Febo here with you talking all things tennis as we so love to do. We've got a massive show lined up. It's a bit of a bookworm show and we'll tell you why in just a second. But before we do any of it, my friend, my wonderful friend and co-host Joel Frucci joins me as he always does. Joel, how are you? Going, well, I was about to say going well, Val, but um, physically I'm here, but mentally um, I'm still uh, at about, oh. um, I'm just thinking back, probably about uh, 7:45 on Sunday morning mm. Australian time. Um, yeah. Anyway, we we won't we won't talk about it. But uh, yeah, other than that, I'm all right. Uh, yeah, I'm still a bit flat to be honest. After the World Cup, you know, it took a moment of brilliance from the goat and a defensive blunder of all blunders to knock us out of the World Cup. But you know, I think we uh, look. All in all, Australia put in such a wonderful show and it's yeah. it's so good. Those scenes from Federation Square throughout the entirety of um and throughout the entirety of the tournament. We actually watched the Tunisia match together um at the Imperial Bar in 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 Melbourne and look at it, it it was so good and it was so nice seeing so much passion for sport again. Um, and it is going to lead us into our chat in seg one, but we will park that for a second because we do have, as I said, a bit of a bookworm show tonight because, and I've been reading a few tennis books recently. I, um, you know, last year I was able to purchase, um, Chris Clary's Roger Federer book. And after he retired, I, I got through that again and, um, and went through and it's just such a wonderful read and what an awesome author and writer Chris Clary is, but also, We've got Richard Norton, who's just written a book called Gentleman Jack, The Jack Crawford Story. So we're going to talk about Jack Crawford, who was an Australian player in the 1920s and 30s, actually played until 1951, um, played the Australian Open that year, which is quite unbelievable, a 25, six-year career span, that. But he won three slams in 1933, almost completed the calendar Grand Slam, would have been the first player to do it, was within a set of doing so, Fred Perry. The man was uh, who undid that. So we'll talk to Richard Norton about that. Really looking forward to it. And Bastien Fashan has written a book. He's a French media tennis media guru. Does social media writes. He writes books now. He's unbelievable. He's got such a wonderful tennis knowledge. But he is going to join us to chat about his new book about the big three and talk to us about their stories and and the role that each of them have played in that rivalry. So looking forward to that chat. But Joel, the Davis Cup. Just finished. Australia, mm. they lost. They made the final, but they lost. Um, Fran- oh, sorry, Canada, not France. Um, they speak French <laughs> there, but they're not French. Um, we did lose to France recently, just not in tennis. Yeah, I know. Let's yeah, that that one doesn't count. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, the tournament started after that, or just maybe Craig Goodwin's goal was the start, but then I, I can't remember what happened in the next seventy minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Davis Cup, Australia, with a really really solid week in, well, I'm going to call it the shit show. It's a shit show, the Davis Cup. It's terrible. Unwatchable. Because it's just such a plastic event. They make the final and they got to play Canada in Spain. How far away is Spain from Australia, Joel? Uh, Probably um, lots of numbers. Yeah. And how far (laughs) away? Five figures at least. How far away is Canada from Spain? Lots of well, numbers it's a again. transatlantic flight, so that's still pretty far. Yeah, lots of numbers again. So they're playing in a final 
in crap time zones for both countries. Um, I think the final started at 11 p.m. Australian time, which is just awful, um, considering you probably only get to watch one match and and that's it. But it's just, yeah, the fact that they've hosted the group stages or the the preliminary qualifying rounds, the playoff rounds in three different cities around, uh, around Europe, and then the final has been staged in Europe. There's no home and away ties anymore. No one cares. Honestly, and Leighton Hewitt came out and said, how good would this final have been if it was played in Australia? Yeah. yeah. And it would have been. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It yeah. Like the, 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 the passion's gone out of it. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, that's really all you can say. Like if you have a home and away tie in Canada, in Australia, wherever it is, um, it's, it's going to be good. Like the, the partisan crowds for each country was what made it great. Um, especially in Australia. Like, I mean, if we, if we take, what we've just seen with the World Cup as just an example, obviously drawing from a different sport, but um, it just shows how, uh, I guess, we, as an example, get around our our teams. And there's no doubt that that would have happened with the Davis Cup if it was um, in the, the format that we all that we all loved. And you can look at other nations as well, like when Argentina won the Davis Cup, um, the the scenes in. In Argentina, oh, that was in fantastic. that was in Croatia, and the scenes were like that when Maradona yeah. when Maradona yep. was he went nuts. Yep. Um, yep. But you're right, just just awesome. You're right, and Australians get behind their athletes. We only have to look back to the 2020 ATP Cup, Joel, when Kyrgios and Demonor played Joe Salisbury and Jamie Murray in that doubles match that went into an uh, the the most epic of match tiebreaks that we could ever imagine, and. Remember the Ken Rosewall Arena crowd? It was bonkers. And then we've got mm. this plastic crap in, in Malaga, Spain, because Jared Piquet is Spanish. It's just, yeah. it makes it makes absolutely no sense that they're doing this. Because it doesn't work. The, and Joel, the tie was over in two hours. You used to have yeah. to play two best of five set matches, then the doubles the next day, so it at least go into two days. And the drama was always there. And then if it went into the third day, you, you've you got a night to sleep on it. Or, you know, it just, mm. I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't do it for me anymore. It's just yeah. so quick, so cutthroat. And look, I understand why they did it. They wanted the big players to go and play. But how many big players actually went? Yeah, well, I mean, I can, you can understand the sort of push for change, but... Yeah, in in this instance, it certainly was ended up being a case of it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, they're talking of big players not playing. Um, yeah, and and on the actual tennis itself, you can only really wonder what would have happened if Nick Kyrgios had played. Um, because I'm I'm almost convinced that if Nick had have played, then maybe Australia would have won the tie. I'm a hundred percent convinced of it. If he played, Australia win. I think. I'm pretty sure Demon or I can't remember the rankings exactly. I'm gonna get them up now. But I am almost positive that Nick Kyrgios might now be the number two ranked Australian player on the tour. So oh no, he's number one by two spots. So it would have been Demonor versus Shapovalov, which is a good matchup for Demonor because he generally tends to beat him or push mm. him at least. And then Nick Kyrgios against Felix Auger-Aliassime, who's had a pretty big few months. 
winning three straight titles, Paris semifinals, then the ATP finals. He's coming off a lot of tennis. Kyrgios plays. He had a bit of a warm-up in Turin in doubles with Thanasi Kokonakis. He plays. That matchup is very, very even all of a sudden. Instead of relying on Kokonakis to to go out and beat Denis Shapovalov, and Thanasi said it himself that he just wasn't really there. Um, you know, he didn't. He he had a terrible match, and Shapovalov was picking winners off left, right, and center. But yeah, I, look, I I think if Kyrgios did play. And that's the problem with the Davis Cup right there. Because we used to say this all the time. If Kyrgios played, if Tomic played, if any of the if Federer played for Switzerland, if Nadal played this tie or this rubber, you know, these players would have won. The age old debate. So why did we change it? Because the same things are happening and it's not even it's not even watchable. Because it's yeah, right at the end of the year. No everyone's kind of petered yeah. out. Yeah, and if we're talking about the Davis Cup still with the tagline, the World Cup of Tennis, uh, on the theme of the World Cup again, mm. um, but if we're talking about the Davis Cup being the World Cup of Tennis, it, it can't be that when a country's best players don't want to play. Because if we're talking about a World Cup of Tennis, um, representing your country should be the absolute pinnacle, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the fact that someone like Nick Kyrgios doesn't want to play for Australia really, I think, says it all about where the actual Davis Cup is at. Yep. And you look at the plays that did play. Like, look, America did okay. That I think they had Fritz and Tiafo playing. But the Spanish team having um, Carreño Busta and Bautista Gu, Alcaraz injured, okay, fair enough. But Rafa didn't play. Also probably a little bit of an injury niggle. But, you know, not their best team. Um, you know, Croatia, Marin Cilic played, Chorich played. They had their best plays there. But they wanted the big players to come and play. And not many of the top 10 or even top 20 were there. So, you know, it, it, and look, Canada have continued their dominance. Second year in a row that the team that's won the ATP Cup has gone on and won the Davis Cup. So congratulations to them because Russia did it in 21 and now Canada have done it in 22. But it just, I don't know, it, it, there's something about it that's just so much worse. I used to gear up for the Davis Cup. I used to love sitting there and watching it. You know, I remember staying up and watching those world group playoffs early in the last decade, you know, 2010, 11, when Australia would always just fall short when, you know, Cedric Marcel Steeb would come out and just absolutely tear Leighton Hewitt to shreds out of nowhere, um, you know, on, on his home deck. But yeah, I don't know. There's, there's something about this Davis cup format that is just deplorable, unwatchable plastic as I've, I've said a few times, but, yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't I don't know, it doesn't do it for me. So yeah, the the ITF has a lot of a lot of work to do um in terms of getting this right because Australia and, and Leighton said it again. He's like I can't see Australia ever hosting a final. And neither can I. And Australia were the ones that spoke against this vote of change for the Davis Cup. But what they probably should have done was maybe make it a best of three set format with everything that they had. So day yeah. one singles, day two, doubles, day three, reverse singles, but had that as a best of three set. And the, Yeah, the, I think that would have worked. But then the because, drama yeah. of best of five sets, but then it is exhausting for the players to, you know, travel out of their schedule and then yeah. play best of five. So, okay, fair enough. Do whatever you need to do to change that. But keep the home and away ties because you said it, Joel, those ties in South America, in Argentina, they were crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's lost it's lost the partisan edge, and 
I think if they're going to revive the Davis Cup, that's that's the key ingredient, the obvious ingredient, um, because it it it's just turned into just another European event, really. Yep. Um, and there's already a lot of European events, and that's probably the reason why. Look, I, I think that I, I think that a neutral tie can work, um, but when when it's played in a part of the world where there is already so much tennis, then it's no chance. But um, even if it was played but, in the US, Joel, it's if you play it in the same place for a week. Australians aren't going to get up every day and watch that. Like it, it screws up our sleeping patterns completely if we do, and that's the same as it was in um, in Malaga. But if you're doing it, a, you know, once every three months, it's okay. And now all of a sudden, Australia doesn't play the Davis Cup until December next year. So there's no Australian action until the finals next year. So they get no time to gel. No time to sort of work out a team strategy, who would work better in what spot. That's it. They're playing December next year because they made the final. Them and Canada are already locked in, but there's no tent that they don't play. So where's the Davis <laughs> Cup going in this country? We're the second most successful country of all time in Davis Cup. We're playing one week next year instead of a possible yeah. four to really drum it up. It's I don't get it. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't get it. And yeah, to some extent you could argue that the actual format of the Davis Cup now is actually quite confusing. But um Oh I've... yeah, that, that's that's it. I think we've I think we've pretty much said it all. Um, yeah, I think so. The Davis Cup. It's it's just at the moment, it's really if it wasn't already, it's just at a real uh sort of fork in the road moment. They really need to sort it out because um it's you know what? It's it's easy to see this event not existing the way that it's going before too long. Yeah, I I can't see it lasting with the new United Cup and how all of these tournaments are working. Davis and Billie Jean King Cup, I don't think they've got long to go because you look at what Australia were doing in the World Cup, the publicity around that, there's no people in Fed Square going to watch it. And Australia made the Fed Cup final as well. This is a great yeah. year for Australian tennis, but you wouldn't know it. You would not know mm. it. So I yeah. think that's all we should leave it. Richard Norton's going to come up next on Breakpoint, so looking forward to that. Follow Breakpoint on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast. Search us on Facebook and subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform. And Joel, let's get to our first special guest of the of the show because it, it's 90 years next year since Australian Jack Crawford almost became the first person ever to win the calendar Grand Slam. He fell short right at the last hurdle at the US Open. He was a six-time singles Grand Slam champion and uh, he won the Australian Open on four occasions, the French Open, and Wimbledon was a finalist at the US. He won the Australian, French, and Wimbledon in doubles as well. Same as mixed doubles, so he was a pretty handy Grand Slam player. He took on um, one of the biggest eras of French tennis, the Four Musketeers, of course, um, back in the late 1920s. He was an absolute superstar of the game and a pioneer of some sorts of tennis within the country. And a man who's just written a book about him, Richard Norton, Gentleman Jack, the Jack Crawford story, has just come out. It's just been launched. I've got it in my hands now. 
Uh, forward by Ken Rosewall, uh, none other than Ken Rosewall, one of the legends of Australian tennis. Richard joins us right now on the show. Richard, how are you going? I'm good, thank you, Val. Good to see you or talk to you. Um, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. First things first, what made you look at the story of Jack Crawford and say, I'm going to write a book about him? Oh, well, uh, I've, I've actually, you mentioned Ken Rosewell. I wrote a book about Ken Rosewell a few years ago. So I, I have a great interest in the history of the sport. And I've also written a book about Norman Brooks, who was the first Australian player to win uh, Wimbledon back in 1907. And a year or so ago, I wrote a story about Daphne Ackert, who was the leading Australian player in the 1920s. And that, in fact, that book led uh, very much into this book because uh, one of Daphne Ackhurst's close friends and fellow playing partners was the woman who ended up marrying Jack Crawford. So they, they all played as a little group of players together. So um, I had done a lot of the the research and, and background. It sort of seemed like the next step to take in, in any ways. And what was your fascination with this era of Australian tennis or this era of tennis in general? Well, I think this Crawford particularly, as we, we kind of try and make evident in the book, was, was a bit different because the, the previous great players like Brooks and Gerald Patterson, who both won Wimbledon, both came from very much establishment Melbourne families, well-to-do families, um, but Crawford was somewhat different. He came from a sort of rural background and uh, as a young boy, the family were more or less forced off the land because of drought and they had to travel up to Sydney and start all over. So from a quite different background and, uh, um, and, and then he played during a time when Australia was afflicted by the Depression. So you had these whole sort of economic struggles that he had to endure and the story is quite a different one I think it's um plus you you certainly have an era when although the Davis Cup had been very important back when Brooks was playing because Australia won the Davis Cup for the first few times it it was becoming much more of an international kind of uh event and um more than that, I think the Australian Championship was also becoming much more international with international teams travelling to Australia to play in the tournament. So the world was broadening out and he was becoming a, a big star amongst a whole lot of other famous players. Yeah, and you reeled off some some just uh, some massive names in uh, in tennis there before, Richard, about uh, some people that you profiled. Where does that um, kind of passion for... Uh, the sport, the era for um, these kind of players come from for you? Well, look, I've always, as as a young person, um, I was a great follower of the game. But then um, in when I, when I was a bit younger and living in Melbourne in the late 70s, I used to write profiles of, players and stories for what was then Australian Tennis Magazine, which still exists, but um, it was run by Alan Trengove, who was a very well 
world-renowned tennis writer, and he gave me the chance to write uh, for him as in would sort of ring me up and say, oh, you can write a story on this or that. And and so I've always had that sort of interest in doing the research and writing about the historical events and uh, because that's what I did. And you look at it's it's great and, and this is this is something that I don't think gets done enough in tennis worlds you know we you know we're, we're focused on the here and now or you know the commentators of that that played in the 80s or focus on their era or maybe just a little bit before but we're never really focused on what happened in the 20s and 30s and they were the pioneering years of, of tennis even and then you talk about the Davis Cup the originality of that and um it, it's just, it's such a fascinating time because it was when things were starting to evolve within the sport and you had the, as I mentioned before, the French Musketeers that were so prevalent in building the Roland Garros Stadium. And then you've got Jack Crawford who's making waves and, and playing so well. That 1933 season will go down in history as one of the greatest ever seasons. And we saw Novak Djokovic do it last year and fall in the US Open final against Daniel Medvedev. Crawford did it back then and talk to us about what you found with that year and what he was able to do and how that sort of captured the tennis world back then. Well, it was, it was interesting because he um, uh, hadn't anticipated being the best player of that year because the best player in 1932 by a proverbial mile <laughs> was this guy Ellsworth Vines, the American player who won Wimbledon in about five minutes in the Wimbledon final. He played a guy called um, um, Bunny Austin and Ellsworth Vines used to serve so fast that nobody could see the ball basically. But um, so, but then strangely Vines came out to Australia having won Wimbledon and the US Championship in 1932 and then fell short. I think he was probably exhausted by the whole um, experience of playing that big season. And one of the stories we tell in the book is that Ellsworth Vines was beaten in the Australian Championship by a 16-year-old Australian, Vivian McGrath, who's another of the characters in the story, um, somebody who, and that was probably the greatest match he ever played as a 16-year-old to beat to beat Ellsworth, Ellsworth Vine. So Crawford then, having done that, I think he took the wind out of the sails of Ellsworth Vines and went on, won the tournament, then won in Paris and played against Ellsworth Vines, the champion American, in the final of Wimbledon. And it was probably uh, regarded for many years up until the sort of Borg-McEnroe-type finals as a, as one of the greatest Wimbledon finals of all time because it went to 7-5 in the fifth set and all this kind of stuff. And um, a magnificent match which everybody thought was an outstanding sort of um, a tennis contest, and then he went on to to the United States. And the book tells the story that having played at Wimbledon, Jack himself, who was always not terribly sort of well a well person because he suffered from asthma and he suffered from various types of nervous tension, um, hadn't 
arguably even wanted to go on to America, but he got there and um, ended up getting to the final of the uh, US National Championship. And he was confronted by Fred Perry, who was this very confident English player who um, whose greatest desire in life was to beat Jack Crawford, win the US Championship. And we were talking a moment ago that uh, he, Jack, looked a little nervous before the, the match. And one of the American players, a guy called Sidney Wood, apparently, so it is alleged, walked up and said, well, I've got something to calm you down and put some bourbon <laughs> liquor in a teapot which Crawford had sitting next to him at the umpire's desk uh, chair. So the story was always that maybe Jack um, drank a bit too much of this uh, pot of tea containing the bourbon in it during the match and uh, because the score was fascinating. It was a, a five-set match which Jack led two sets to one and then after the third set, it was a change of ends and Perry then won the final two sets, six-one, six-love or six-love, six-one. So it had a very sad and strange kind of conclusion and the whole attempt to win the Grand Slam went down the tube in a pretty disastrous, disastrous way. And and likewise, sadly, uh, Fred Perry always had a mental advantage over him for the rest of their careers. Uh, Jack may have beaten him a couple of times later on, but Perry was just an amazingly confident sort of fellow and ended up winning Wimbledon three times in a row, 34, 35, 36, and was, along with Donald Budge, um, one of the outstanding players of the 1930s. So in saying that, you get the idea. You've got Vines, uh, Perry and Budge, and so it really was an outstanding era of players because you probably wouldn't put Jack Crawford right at that top echelon of of with that that group of three, but he was almost there, and it shows just how outstanding a player he was. Yeah, gents, I'm just going to assume that uh, bourbon was the original pickle juice, and uh, they were just before our time. But um, uh, like all things considered, Richard, I mean the fact that you know asthma is obviously uh, certainly these days at least. I mean that would be a massive deterrent for for any athlete or a massive impediment. But then also the fact that you look at the era that that Jack played in. I mean, you put all these things together, and you know the titles speak for themselves. But um, you know also the fact where he was from and and his journey, uh, where he came from. Um, you put all these things together and, um, yeah, it really was just a, a marvellous career, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, also, it, 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 it was, there's these sort of slightly unfortunate things, but he played in the Davis Cup. Um, every, well, I think it was uh, nine times or something between 1928 and 1939. And Australia got to the challenge round uh, well, on two occasions, and they finally won in 1939. Um, but 
by that occasion, by that time, he didn't get to play. The the players that played were um, Adrian Quist and John Bromwich because they'd sort of overtaken him. He he was thirty years old, which was considered a bit too old to play by that time, but which is certainly not the case these days. But um, it was interesting that we also tell the story about the, the captain of that Davis Cup in team in 1939 was Harry Hopman, who uh, was Jack's doubles partner. So he was always uh, a person who was greatly linked with the, the Davis Cup and they, they started playing doubles together when they were young sort of junior players in Sydney. Um, no, that's, that's absolutely, it, it's, it's such a it, it, and it is heartbreaking. But I was just having a look at some of the photos in the book then, and he's and Jack Crawford was with them um, when when they won the Davis Cup. But you talk about being thirty and that being too old back then. Jack ended up playing for another twelve years. He played in the nineteen fifty one Australian Open, lost in the first round. But um, talk to us about the longevity. Obviously, missing four or five Australian Opens with the with the Second World War, but. He played for another 12 years from 46 to 51 as well. Talk to us about sort of why he went for so long. And um, he wasn't overly old. Like now, I think he would have been 42. So a little bit older than Federer when he retired. But still, back then, it would have been a lot older than normal. Well, I guess he he wouldn't have been like players today. No. He wouldn't be like uh, playing. And also, he... He played in a in a very leisurely way. He was a very or he was almost criticised by many people for being almost too casual in the way he played. He had a very graceful, leisurely sort of style, um, and that's probably reflected in that that photo you've got of him on the cover of the book, which is that sort of nicely underspun backhand shot, but um, a beautiful style and. They also say that the way he played basically um, uh, was the way that Australian players tended to play for the next 20, 25 years, leading up on sort of people like Roy Emerson, Ken Rosewall, and the players right up until uh, much more modern players in the 1970s and so on. But... um, I think when when Crawford, uh, he travelled one more time after 1939, I think in 1947, and travelled to Wimbledon and to the United States. But he he didn't actually travel overseas and he uh, was involved in managing a, a... a sporting store and a trophy store in Sydney. So he was always doing doing things rather than playing tennis. Um, and physically, if he had to have con- confront someone like Jack Kramer in 1946, I don't think it would have been a very long match. But um, he, he um, yeah, because, I mean, those, those young guys after the war, and the Frank Sedgmans and whatever wouldn't have had too much problem with him. I no. would, wouldn't have been expected. 
Yeah, certainly. But yeah, no, an unbelievable career, remarkable. And you look at now, look at the the ease in which someone like a Roger Federer played his tennis, and and you all and everybody marvels at sort of the laconic or not laconic nature, but the grace in which he did it. So very different to how it was bestowed or looked upon back then. But Richard, uh, the author of Gentleman Jack, the Jack Crawford story in, uh, and you can grab this. I think it's online at the moment. So grab this. Um, it's, it's, a really, really wonderful story. He's had a remarkable, he had a remarkable career. Richard Norton, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Many thanks. Thanks. See you later on. Richard Norton there joining us on the show, chatting about his new book, Gentleman Jack, the Jack Crawford story and foreword by Ken Rosewall. Well, none other than Ken Rosewall, an absolute legend of the sport of tennis. So really looking forward to sinking my teeth into that one. That's available online at the moment. I think he was saying that they're trying to, work on getting it into stores and, um, and yeah, looking forward to seeing that out there because it is a wonderful story, that of Jack Crawford, one of the original pioneers of Australian tennis. Plenty more still to come here on Breakpoint Podcast. We've got Bastien Fashan to talk about his new book about the big three, keeping that reading theme going here on Breakpoint. Follow Breakpoint on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast. Search us on Facebook and subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform. This is Breakpoint Podcast. Val Febo and Joel Ferrucci joining you to talk all things tennis as we always love to do. We're nearing the end of the year, but we're keeping the book theme of the show going this week. And we have uh, Bastien Fashan, who has written a book about the big three. It is only in French at the moment, but the English we do believe is coming. But he's an absolute tennis guru. He's working with the ATP and social media. He knows everything about the sport, everything about the big three. I've seen it on his social media channels. Um, he's uh, he's very, very widely uh, widely acknowledged as one of the best tennis minds in the media. Bastian, thank you very much for joining us on the show. How are you? Thank you, Val, for having me. Uh, well, I'm good. Uh, the book's been out for a month now. Uh, I know it's going well. I don't know exactly how many copies I've sold, but uh, yeah, it's been exciting uh, to have my first uh, big project out. Now, amazing. And uh, you you did say number one on Amazon in France. So congratulations. That must be a massive thrill. Yeah, so far it's number one in tennis books. Not all, te- not all sports, but uh, in tennis books uh, on Amazon. So hopefully it stays that way. Oh, amazing. And now the, the big three... Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, they're such a wonderful topic because there's endless stories about them. The matches go on forever. They've all met in excess of 40 times. Um, what made you want to write the book? Uh, so first, I wanted, uh, I wanted to write about a topic that hadn't been covered uh, in France. Uh, and there had been so many books about just Federer or just Nadal or Fedel. Uh, but never the three of them. And I thought the story was so much deeper and more interesting when you cover the three of them. There's so many dynamics, uh, so many stories. And even if you want to talk about Federer or Nadal, you have to include Djokovic. He's so uh, uh, important to to the story of them. So I thought that angle was uh, the most interesting. And obviously I've lived through that era uh, I've been a fan uh, for 20 years now, so almost the start of the, the Federer uh, era. Um, and then uh, through the years, I started to appreciate what made Nadal great, what made Djokovic great. So what started as me being a fan of Federer, just Federer, 
became uh, me um, becoming a fan of tennis in general and and being able to uh, identify what makes a, a player great and what makes a, a dynamic a rivalry great so uh, I think it's a reflection of who I've become as a fan and I felt I was uh, mature enough at 28 to to write about this and and hopefully make a book interesting yeah I, I feel like we're we're blessed Bastian because like we're all we're all a similar age you're 28 I'm 27 Val you're about to turn 27 20, so we're all 27 the, next month don't don't 27 next month 26 so he's, still the, he's the baby Val's the baby of all of us but we're all in the yeah. same kind of age bracket and um you know, I, I, every time I look at modern tennis and I, I think about the fact that certainly in the ATP, we've, we've grown up with Federer, we've grown up with Nadal, we've grown up with Novak, we've grown up with Andy Murray, Stan Wawrinka. Um, like when, you, when you were writing the book, did you sort of think about that and just how, how wonderful it's been as a fan of tennis to actually grow up in the era where these guys have just dominated the tour? Yeah, it's been incredible. I mean, my dad grew up through the McEnroe and Borg era. So in a way, he was lucky as well. But, you know, I wouldn't trade my era for anything. I think we're never going to see that uh, ever uh, in a million years. And, you know, to have those three players almost equal, I'm not going to say who I think is a little bit higher. No, just kidding. I think that or. <laughs> All three of them are uh, in the same equal footing, pretty much. Uh, I mean, in terms of numbers, in terms of aura, like it all balances out. And it's extraordinary that in the span of 20 years, uh, at the end of the day, uh, they all end up with like 20 plus slams. And uh, even the, the rivalries, you see Nadal against Djokovic, is, I think it's 30 to 29 and it's pretty even uh on all surfaces like if you balance everything out so it's yeah it's it's truly a blessing to have been able to to live through that that era of tennis yeah which match stands out for you as the best of the big three and there have been some unbelievable contests that i think will live live in tennis history forever but which if you had to pinpoint one what would it be yeah, yeah, I have one. Uh, uh, 2008 Wimbledon final. Yeah. I think it's the best match of all time um, because it had everything, uh, all the narratives. Uh, Federer had won Wimbledon five times in a row. He was on a 65 winning streak, match winning streak on grass at the time. Hadn't lost on grass since 2002. So six years, uh, Nadal, had won, Nadal had lost uh, 2006 and 2007 Wimbledon finals. Uh, the, the one the year before was super close. Uh, I thought he, he would win this one. He was close to winning it. So he was coming back with a, with a vengeance. And he won the first two sets of the Wimbledon 2008 final. Then, uh, then the rain started started to fall. Uh, uh, both players came back to the locker room. Um, Mirka had a little little uh, pep talk with Federer. Uh, Federer came back. Uh, he won the next two sets. Then you know, with the dark, uh, it's all the 
the theatrics of this match, the the fact that it ended up at uh, at nightfall, uh, that Feder was finally beaten. Uh, I thought also it was Nadal's uh, finest ever win, and there's so many so so many candidates for that, but uh, I think it's the finest. And I think if you ask him. That's the win that stands out because it was his his first Grand Slam outside of Ron Garros. And, you know, at the time he was still considered as uh, a one pony, a one slam. Uh, um, yeah, that's that's the win that made him uh, a different player and gave him a different uh, image. And he became world number one shortly after that. So yeah, that's the that's the most important, and that's the one that I, yeah, I think is the most uh, iconic of the of the big three. Yeah, and of course, I guess the great thing with Fidel was that that rivalry. Um, I guess little did we expect, but all all the way down the track in 2017, it still had so many chapters to to be written. But um, you know, I think the the fact, Bastian, that you've included Novak Djokovic um, in in the narrative is really, really fascinating. And just the dynamic that he actually brings to that kind of three-way rivalry, because I guess a lot of people would probably see him as something of of a villain, Um, maybe especially in the last few years. Obviously, Novak's got his own fans and, um, you know, his his tennis speaks speaks for itself. So do his titles. There's obviously, you know, nothing to to shirk out there. But... um, it's like it always fascinates me just the the role that that he plays um, in that rivalry and the fact that um, you know he's really asserted himself really as I think one of the, the the greatest players ever one of the greatest athletes ever but then you've also got this um, kind of offset about Novak with um, just the way that his personality is and some of his beliefs I guess um, and kind of how um, you know how that affects. Um, his demeanor on court um, and some of his rivalries, I guess. So um, I guess we'll have to kind of read the book to find this out, but how do you sort of sum up Novak's role um, in that rivalry with Federer, with, um, with Nadal? Yeah, I talk about it at the very beginning. I say you, in, in every story, you have a, an initial uh, situation and I say you had two superheroes and, uh, so you had Batman and Superman and Djokovic arrived and created the Joker. Uh, you know, that movie had only two uh, worlds to uh, to give and, and they didn't have a third one. So Djokovic created it for himself and he inserted himself into that story. And, you know, he just took it upon himself to, you know, make it a three-way story. And um, the fans uh, didn't, uh, by it at the beginning and and Feder and Nadal uh, neither because um, you know he was uh, impersonating 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 them at the beginning he was uh, being quite uh, arrogant not not arrogant but very confident in very confident in himself um, saying I'm going to be number one even when he was tw- 20 years old uh, saying I'm going to surpass their uh, slam tallies. Like, it's like he knew from the very beginning uh, what was going to happen. And that's part of the why I picked that picture of him uh, pointing to his head um, on the, on the cover of the mm-hmm. book. 
because I wanted I wanted something different from uh, Federer Nadal, uh, who are pictured uh, in uh, hitting forehands. And yeah, I wanted to depict the fact that uh, Djokovic had a plan and he knew all along uh, that he was going to execute it and how he was going to execute it. And, you know, 2011 happened, uh, it re reshuffled everything. And then the next decade was his. Um, so, yeah, I love that he, uh, he knew all along that he was going to be part of this. And not only part of this, but he was going to be number one. And yeah, the, the story, in my opinion, is so much better with him in it. And Federer and Nadal wouldn't, be, wouldn't have reached uh, those heights in terms of level of tennis without him, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you look at the hunger in 2017 when Djokovic was down and, and Murray was also down. You look at what Federer and Nadal did. I think that sort of gave them the opportunity where they thought, you know, we can get back to the top here and, you know, we can start to dominate again. And that's exactly what they did. They've both evolved their games. And now, unfortunately for tennis, there's only two left with the retirement of Roger Federer. All three of them were at the O2 Arena in London for the Labor Cup. How are you that day because I was I was I was inconsolable <laughs> in that final presentation for Federer it was it was definitely the end of an era and someone that like you I've watched since I was a little kid and um and have loved watching and adored watching to see him say goodbye to tennis was hard but to see those two there and Murray as well to an extent was was so fitting for the sport wasn't it yeah uh so it was quite emotional obviously and uh, I got lucky in a way because I had just one week left before uh, the book was printed. So I could write the last chapter about Federer retiring with Nadal and Djokovic. So in a way, it was perfect uh, fitting ending to the story, to the book. So it was sort of my therapy. You know, um, I didn't overthink it. I could write, just write about it and the words flew. And, you know, it was it was the easy it was the easiest chapter to write of all of them because uh, it was the most recent and, you know, the most uh, high in, in emotions. But yeah, it was, it was so great that uh, Nadal and Djokovic could be, could be there. Uh, I know that uh, Nadal, uh, Nadal's wife had uh, problems with the baby at the time. So it's good that he still found a way to to be in London that weekend and I also love that Murray was included because yeah it's a big three but from 2008 to 2016 it was a big four yep I've seen many people deny it but I mean uh both from uh, a stat point of view and from uh sort of cultural point of view it was a big four and, you know, the players themselves, Federer and Nadal Djokovic, know it. They feel like Murray was their, not their equal, but he was part of a, uh, a special group at the time. So it's great that he was with them and that practice session that yeah. they held uh, on Friday, I think before the weekends, uh, was amazing. Like, uh, it, it's there was so many memories from from that period of uh, of time, um, but yeah, the the whole weekend was special. I'm super happy that uh, Federer got to say goodbye in his own own terms, uh, just like Serena at the U.S. Open, and uh, and that he could play one finals double, one final doubles with with Rafa, 
And uh, well, I wish he won, but <laughs> it doesn't really matter. And yeah, the 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 moment where where they um, hold hands on the bench was special. Um, all the photos, all the videos, all the memes. Yeah, that's something I I'll always remember, and uh, I was gl- I was glad uh, I could write about it in the book. Yeah, it was it was a where were you moment when Roger Federer retired, I think. And um, one final one, I think, before we let you go is you mentioned how much of a Federer fan you were um, mm-hmm. as a youngster, and I've seen on Twitter your story about you and your grandma and how she bought you the Roger yeah. Federer two thousand and nine Roland Garros yeah. shirt. Um, what is your favorite Federer moment from from his career? Um, I think it's the 2011 uh, Roland semifinal against Djokovic. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a final. It's not a. It's not the most special win of his career, but to me, it's the one that still uh, stays with me because it's, you know, Djokovic was on a 43 win match winning streak yeah. uh, and it felt like Federer had absolutely no chance like it never happened at any other moment in his career even when he was facing Rafa in a Rangaris final people didn't write him off like that like that day he had zero chance to win and that's why I believed as well and at the time I was still a, hot, a hardcore Federer fan so and slowly through the match, I started believing even like even when he won the first set, I was like, come on, slow down. Like <laughs> he's still gonna, not going to win it. Djokovic going to win in four. And then in five, uh, when Djokovic served for the fifth, I was like, it's over. They're, they're going to come back the next day and Djokovic going to win. But yeah, um, it felt like Federer had ro- rolled through the years and and yeah he he never even in his prime played at that level on clay and and Djokovic didn't even play a, a bad match I thought no. like I thought he would he would have beaten Rafa also that day I think and if he had gone to the final I think he would have won the Rangaros and maybe completed the Caranda slam so yeah uh, for Federer to have that win uh, against that Djokovic at 31 years of age yeah, and same same as the twin uh, as the two thousand eight Wimbledon final. Yep. It was at dusk, yep. so yeah, I thought it was special. And I think the the whole Federer when he waved his finger and screamed exactly, in joy exactly. when he when he won. I think if he had have played that same level against Rafa in the final, it may have been a different story because it was so close that final as well. Everyone forgets that Federer was a chance of winning both of those first two sets and. Um, who knows what the story would have been had he done that. But Bastien, the big three, it's number one on Amazon in tennis books in France. I can't wait till the English version does come out because I can't wait to read it. The story of the big three, something that is going to live on for decades. So Bastien Fashan, thank you so much for joining us on the show and we really appreciate your time. Congratulations on the release of the book. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Val. Bastian Fashan there joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. Really looking forward to getting his book when it does come out in English, Joel. Um, my French is uh, is not great, so I, um, <laughs> I'm not sure how yours is. But I went when we went to Paris this Back year. <laughs> Je suis Val. Oh, no. That's no. Oh, my God. No, that's I am. No. Je m'appelle Val. Je, what's, um, what's Je suis? I can't even remember. I think that Jisui is you are. 
I think so. Or we are. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Um, yeah. Je suis is you are. Um, yeah. So let's ignore my French because as I said, it's not good. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're in Paris this year, and I tried to use Google Translate to order things from the wait from the waiter. So you know, I'm in their country; I should respect their language. <laughs> and my pronunciation, I think, was so good um, that they started speaking back to me in French, and I had to show them my phone because I tried to memorize it so <laughs> they didn't see because I was proud and I didn't want them to see that I had my phone. Then they start speaking to me in French, and I was like, "Oh no, that's not good." So I had to show them and say, "Oh, English, English." And then, yeah, they're okay. But, um, yeah, we'll move on yeah. from that embarrassment and humiliation. Yeah. Similar thing happened to me, though, just, just to empathize and soften the blow. Mm. Um, back in 2016, walked into a, a baguette shop and, and ordered one. Had a, I still have a friend who, at the time, spoke a bit of French, and she was telling us how to say, I would like. So I said that and pointed to something. And then, yeah, she, uh, <laughs> she replied in French, and I was like, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm a fraud, and started <laughs> laughing. So that was, uh, yeah. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> Uh, like the old Peter Griffin, wee wee, and he starts laughing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to take a wicked yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, let's keep going. Benoit of the week time. Speaking of France, Benoit of the week. It's our favourite segment, and um, we haven't actually discussed this off air. But who are we going to award it to this week? I, I, look, I can think of something, but I'll let you go. Yeah, no, Benoit of the week uh, is. It's a good Benoit this week. Benoit of the week goes to the Socceroos yep. for just a fantastic World Cup campaign. Great minds think yeah, alike. Yeah. Really made us proud. And uh yeah, shame it's over. But um yeah, this uh this run has the potential to leave a, a long legacy for that particular sport. So yeah, th- big thanks to the team if they're listening, which they probably aren't. But anyway. Well, we'll make them listen. Mitchell Duke, Matthew Leckie, <laughs> and Craig Goodwin, the three scorers, all in open play for the first time in eight years for Australia. So unbelievable. Yeah. And let's uh let's just let's just hope that uh, some of the players hate the Davis Cup. Yeah, exactly right. And I reckon they would. I reckon they'd be the types of guys, normal good blokes, that would absolutely hate the Davis Cup. But also, um, yeah, uh, looking forward to seeing what they can do. And Joel, the last time Australia made the the, uh, the round of 16 was in 2006, and they did it again in 2022. You want to know something similar about those two years? Rafael Nadal won the French Open. Oh, <laughs> 16 years apart. It's incredible. It is incredible, just to the longevity of Rafael Nadal's career. So I thought I'd leave you with a little bit of a tennis statistic there. And, uh, yeah, the Socceroos can do it, but Rafa can do it, what, 14 times, which is just absolutely unbelievable. So, Joel, thank you very much for your efforts tonight. No worries, Val. See you soon. Big thank you to Bastian Fashan and Richard Norton for joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. This has been Val Febo and Joel Frucci taking you through the world of tennis. We'll be back for one more show this year to wrap it all up and talk about the, you know, who played well, who didn't do as well as we thought and everything in between. But you can subscribe on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and everywhere you get your podcasts from. And also we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, Breakpoint Podcast. Just search us on all of those and we're there. You can find us and contact us on there if you need to, if you want to bag us or or bag us or, you know, get angry at us for saying something. If you like the Davis Cup, but probably ignore it. Who knows? This has been Breakpoint. We'll catch you soon.